Good morning, Vietnam and Slovenia and Serbia and Sri Lanka and Somalia and apparently I'm just naming S countries. But anyway, good morning to everyone out there who's listening today, at least in the morning. If you're not listening in the morning, I wish you no goodness, no congratulations. This is a morning show, people. I bet you didn't know that, neither did I. But now that I'm saying it, it makes so much sense. So good morning to you. And if it's not morning, you should just pretend like it is so that you can listen to this with a clean conscience. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) this is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Today we are on question number 22, which is the second part of a three-part series we're doing. And the question of this series is, what if God was evil? Dun, dun, dun. All right, let's get into it. Here we go. My wife and I are watching Netflix the other night, and uh, she happens to fall asleep on the couch, which gives me free reign to watch whatever I want to watch on Netflix. And I happened to make a very wonderful decision and watch this program called Ocean Giants, which the episode I watched was specifically about whales. Now, I love whales. Whales are awesome. I mean, just the idea that the blue whale is 100 feet long. That's longer than any dinosaur we've ever found. The biggest creature on Earth, the biggest creature that's ever been, potentially the biggest creature in the history of the cosmos is right here in our backyard. Well, not really in my backyard, but it's still alive. I mean, that's really cool. God has taken away from us all the cool dinosaurs, but he's left the biggest creature ever. He's left the blue whale. Anyway, at one point in the program, they were following humpback whales in pursuit of a mate. And it kind of played out comically as there was this giant female humpback whale, and she's like sprinting away from like eight suitors. Um, And I guess eventually... One of the suitors bullies all the others and wins. And the eight suitors have kind of all been in competition with each other and, like, hitting each other with their faces and stuff. But as soon as the one suitor wins, then I don't know if it's out of sadness. I don't think the marine biologists knew what was actually going on. But the failed suitors, the failed male humpback whales, once they realize what's going on, I guess, they start kind of, like, doing this, like, slow-motion ballet. And they're just kind of, like, slowly playing around with one another. It was a really beautiful thing. And they're making a big point of... You know, these are 60-foot-long creatures here doing ballet and dance moves in front of you. And the divers who were taking the video, you know, get out of the water and they talk about how it's one of the best experiences of their lives and it's so amazing. And I'm realizing as I'm watching this on my, what, 20-inch screen that I I don't even see this as real. This is like another, you know, fictional TV show that I'm watching on Netflix in the moment. There's a disjointedness in experience for me. I'm watching it as a viewer, as someone who's trying simply to be entertained, not as someone who's actually watching a real event. And I bring up this idea, hopefully, to illustrate how I think oftentimes we read old stories, old war stories, or we read something in the Bible, and there's a disconnect of like, yes, yes, they went and they slaughtered all these people. Good, good. And then the next day, what happens? Tell me what happens the next day. Or we're just, we're reading it for the narrative, not for like the visual intensity, or not for a first-person experiential account. We're not reading it to be there. 
So I want you to keep that in mind today as we go into the marrow of our story and our question. Now, last week we started the series, What If God Was Evil? And our focus was more on the question really of, what is our response if God turns out to be evil? Another way to put it for us Christians is, what are the conditions of our love for God? Is there something God could do that would actually cause us to cringe and revoke our love for him or revoke our Christianity? Is there something God could do that would be so morally abhorrent to us in our conscience that we would be like, whoa, whoa, I'm getting off the boat. I don't want to be on that bandwagon, you know? Winning the Super Bowl's not worth deflating these footballs, Tom Brady, God. Is there a line in the sand that if God crossed it, we would back out of our faith? And again, the way I think I was interpreting that is, on the surface, that's an easy, like, Yes, yes, my love is unconditional, but when I try to actually sink into those thoughts, it gets a lot harder. And the access by which we were talking about was like, what if God broke his own rules? What if God was a hypocrite in some way? Today, we're not going to go that angle. We're not going to look at the hypocrisy aspect. We're going to go straight in and look at the passages or the ideas that often people like Christopher Hitchens, when he wrote his book, God is Not Great, zeroed in on, right? And that's the claim that, and that's the claim that God calls for genocide. That God is the same as your Hitlers, your Stalins, your Pol Pots. He is a mass murderer on the grand scale. That's the claim by critics of the Old Testament. That's the claim of many that are in the new atheist camp. So I want us to just go straight into that. Now, there's several passages where God calls Israel to go and fight a particular people group, often with the proclamation of killing every man, woman, child, and beast. But rather than like try to do an overview and look at several passages, I thought it would be more valuable for us just to spend our attention just in one specific passage. So we're going to look at Numbers 31. So if you're flipping in the Bible, this is the fourth book of the Bible, and it takes place while Moses is still alive and... Right after, like, the Ten Commandments stuff has happened, right? So the Israelites were slaves under Egyptian rule, and then God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and now they're wandering in, like, the wilderness is what we call it. And this period goes along for 40 years where they're just kind of wandering around. And while they're there, they go into battle against several different people groups, against different nations, I guess you would call them. So that's the context. I'm just going to read this story straight through. It's 31 verses, so hang tough with me. And then once I've read it, then we'll dissect it a little bit. But here we go. Numbers 31, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Bor, with the sword. Okay, I gotta interrupt right there. Balaam is a super, super, super interesting character. We're not gonna talk about him today, but some other day, keep this as a mental note for, I don't know, question 42 or something like that. We will return to this mysterious Balaam figure. Moving on. 
And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the places where they lived and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves, and camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with the water for impurity. And whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. And you must wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean. And afterward you may come into the camp. The Lord said to Moses, Take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast, you and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the fathers' houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation, and levy for the Lord a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of five hundred, of the people and of the oxen and of the donkeys and of the flocks. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to the Lord. And from the people of Israel's half you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the people of the oxen of the donkeys and of all the flocks of all the cattle and give them to the Levites who keep guard over the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, there's our story. So let's recap real quick. What happened? What just happened? Well, God told Moses to take vengeance on the Midianites. Moses calls for a thousand from every tribe of Israel, that's 12,000 men to go into battle against the Midianites, which apparently cover a multitude of cities, and they go, and they wage war, and they kill all the men, but the Israelite warriors take the spoils of war back to camp. That includes a bunch of precious metals, a bunch of beasts, and a bunch of women and young ones. When Moses finds out about this, he's angry. He's upset with them, and he says, why didn't you kill all the women? They were the ones who took Balaam's advice. You know, shame on you for not killing them. Now, go through all the women, and if they've had sex before, kill them. Leave the virgins alone, and then all the children, any male child, go kill them. And then after that, there's a long discussion of how to purify yourself with all the spoil and whatnot, how to purify the precious metals, how to purify everything else, and then finally, how to divide the spoil and give to the Lord and the Lord's priestly people, the Levites, a special contribution. Which includes women, by the way. That's the story. Before we go any further, we need to sit in this for a little bit. I don't want to just skim this. I don't want to just say, okay, they killed all these people. The sacking of a city 
in ancient history is a horrible thing. <laughs> horrible in, in regards to it's just eye-opening, usually the, the cruelty and the extent of, generally speaking, the barbarism that takes place when you siege a city. And in here, obviously, there's a lot of looting going on. They burn everything they don't take, and then they're taking families, ripping families apart, killing the men, taking the little children away, taking the women away. And then once they take these refugees or take these captives, imagine being a soldier and being told, all right, that three-year-old little boy, you got to kill him. Rip him from his mother's arms, cut his head off. Did God really just say that? Take that three-year-old boy and kill him? I mean, for one, that's horrible on the out front. Like this three-year-old little boy, what did he do? He's too young to have, you know, done mortal sins, too young to have hated Israel and all of his inner parts yet. But two, there has to be some sort of trauma for the Israelite warrior who is following orders to actually go and kill the innocent one. Go and chop his head off. Imagine what that does to your psyche. I mean, surely this guy had flashbacks, you know, 20, 30 years down the line of that moment when he ripped the little one from the woman. You can imagine looking at his own three-year-old son, maybe years later, and just imagining someone ripping that three-year-old son from his wife. The pain, the anguish of that. Surely the mother was screaming at the top of her lungs. You know, if you've ever been in those moments when you hear blood-curdling screams, it is it is a thing to behold. It is unworldly. It doesn't sound like it's a person anymore. It sounds, I don't know, like something from the pit of hell when someone from their innermost being screams. It is a horrible thing. It's not just like one three-year-old child. Imagine this, you know, thousand times over. And then furthermore, this inspection of, you know, who's a virgin, who's not a virgin. I'm sure that wasn't done with the most tact. And then, of course, these are warriors. And in ancient history, sacking a town generally meant you're also going and you're pillaging and you're raping, literally raping. So how many of these Midianite women were virgins before the day, but were raped when Israel plundered the, the towns? I don't know. The book doesn't obviously specify if that actually happened. But if human nature can be applied in this situation, if the Israelites were acting as every other human has in history when they sack and pillage a city, then that most certainly occurred. Okay. <laughs> Whew. So that's what happened, right? And as far as I can deduce, if you look at this passage, there's, you know, four things that you might say are real problems. There are four problems that one could, you know, point their finger at God in this situation. Problem number one, this was wholesale genocide. This was take out a bunch of people. It doesn't matter if the individual is guilty or not. It's collectivism. It's everyone dies. Everyone suffers for the crimes of Midian in the past. Two. There's obvious pillaging, sacking, looting, and I think we can pretty much infer raping going on here. I think that is at least a valid question or a valid problem to bring up in this passage because God is silent about that. He doesn't say, go in, kill everyone, but don't lay a hand on the women. You know, he... Sometimes my strongest feelings, my strongest emotions, my strongest questions about events of the Bible or things that happen or God's words are the things he doesn't say. You know, he spends a good amount of time, and I wanted to read that out, even if it was boring and drawl, about the purification of the warriors and purification of, of the stones, because God cares enough about that to, to point that out and to make sure Israelites are clean and purified in all their doings. Yet he doesn't even take time, you know, to put in writing or to have Moses write down one sentence of, yeah, don't rape the women. Don't take this for personal gain. Vengeance right now, Israelites, this is not about you 
getting stuff for free. This is not about you taking advantage of the situation. This is about punishment. This is about vengeance. Whatever God says it's actually about. It's not about Israelites getting cool stuff. But he doesn't say that. So presumably that's what the Israelites went and did. They went and took the stuff that they wanted. And then the third problem is women are listed as property, essentially. The ones that aren't killed, they're given over to people as, I guess, slaves. And even a portion of them are given, you know, to the Levites, to the the priestly class. And the final problem is maybe the most disturbing to me, the most problematic. And that is indignant mercy. So the warriors go out, they fight the battles, they come back. And Moses is angry. He's angry that they showed mercy, even if it's mercy for, you know, sexual reasons or whatever, by not killing the women and the little ones. He's angry about that. Moses expected them to just go in and, you know, genocide them, completely wipe them out. Every man, woman, and child. But they don't. And Moses is angry. They didn't do what he expected. But then the call after that moment is not to go and fix what they didn't do, you know. Moses doesn't say, all right. I told you to go kill everyone. You didn't kill everyone. So finish the job and go kill everyone. Now he's saying, okay, the virgins, the virgin girls, I guess they're useful for us. You know, we can spare them. Don't kill them. I guess if you're looking at like the ends, that's good, right? Less people die. But the reasoning behind it is weird. Like if God wanted a genocide that day, why is Moses backtracking now? It's just the flippancy with which these human lives seem to be dealt with is a problem for me. Okay, so those are our four problems. You got yourself some genocide. You got yourself some sacking and looting. You got yourself some women treated as property. And you got yourself some indignant mercy. One, two, three, four. Now, I'd be bereft to say that there are not some explanations for this. So on the call that this is genocide. Well, maybe not exactly, right? Numerous times in the passages, Israelites are called as going to war. And God doesn't, at least in this passage specifically say, we are taking out the line of Midianites now and forever, amen, because Midianites, you know, have a cleft palate or something like that. It doesn't necessarily seem to be a wholesale race issue. Another thing about this, especially if we look at it as punishment or as an extended aspect of war, I remember a few years back, I happened to catch the O.J. Simpson trial. Not the famous one, but the later one in Las Vegas where he was accused and ultimately sentenced for, I believe, stealing and maybe there was some battery as well. I happened to catch it when O.J. Simpson was taking the stand and he was giving this long statement and he went and he talked about, you know, how he did all these good things and he helped raise the child of the accused and he's been there and he's only looking out for the good. And as far as I understand, all the evidence really pointed to, O.J., you did it again, buddy. You really did do this horrible deed. But as he was giving his testimony, his statement, he played it out with such passion and charisma I was falling for him. And I felt like, oh, I don't want OJ to go to jail. Look at his words. Look at his expression. He's repentant even if he did it. Let's have mercy on him. And it reminded me too that in the moment when you're, you know, the judge or you're convicting someone or you're casting judgment on them, that's not necessarily the time to have mercy on them. OJ Simpson needed to go to jail for the crimes he committed. And despite his best efforts at sounding charismatic and winning me over, he needed to go to jail. Maybe that's the situation here. Maybe the Midianites needed to be taken out. Moving on to the second problem that potentially has an explanation. You know, I was talking about the sacking, the looting, and the raping. Well, we just don't know if the Israelites did this very cordially or not. 
Maybe they did. Maybe God had trained them each in their own hearts to do this very systematically and not take it for personal gain, but do it in a gentlemanly fashion and not actually go and rape the women and do horrible things to everybody while you're, you know, taking siege to these towns. We simply cannot draw the conclusion that that 100% happened, that evil happened while they were taking down these cities. Thirdly, Women as property. Well, yes, it's hard. I'd be hard-pressed to explain that one out. However, I will say that there's also a cultural aspect to this of they're captives, they're taken in as slaves because that's what you did in that time period when you overpowered a people, when you took them over. That people group, that nation became slaves to your nation. So it's not necessarily a gender thing, even though it's obviously a gender thing that the women are the ones who are still alive. And then fourthly, the indignant mercy aspect. Well, that might not necessarily fall on God. That could have just been Moses having the mercy and looking at the women and deciding he wanted those women alive or bowing to the officers and the warriors who wanted to marry these women and have them for themselves. That's not necessarily God doing that. Now, I give these explanations, and I'm not giving them as a way to, or I'm not giving these to you to try to explain away this story or convince you that everything that happened in Numbers 31 was kosher and fine and everything's okay. I just did it because I felt like a lot of people out there will try to give responses to all these things, and we need to at least quickly, briefly go over them so that my next statement would have a little more power. And of course, being what this show is, it's a question, not really a statement. And that question is, does God have to have a good reason to do the things he does? Does he? We mentioned last week, I'll mention it again this week. Romans chapter 9 talks about how God says he's the potter. He's the one who created all of us. He made us all, you know, out of clay, figuratively, if not literally. And so he takes responsibility. He takes the privilege of crushing that clay to remold it or letting it be. Midianites are clay in God's hand, and for whatever reason, God took all that clay and bound it together in a little ball again. But for you, for wherever you are in your faith, your belief, or your disbelief, do you feel like God needs to answer for the things he's done? And whatever answer you would give to that question, actually, let me just sit there for a moment. Answer that question right now, in your heart. Answer it. Does God have to have a good reason for the things he does? Does God have to have a good reason for genocide? Does God have to have a good reason for allowing rape to take place in Numbers 31 on the Midianite women? Does God have to have a good reason for treating women as property in Numbers 31? Okay, there we go. I'm hoping you've come to a conclusion. Now here's the reality. God doesn't defend his decisions. The Bible's not about God defending himself. It's not about him, you know, proving his mettle to us. Take the book of Job, right? The book of Job's all about Satan torturing Job, you know, killing his family, giving him boils, you know, making him a rotting corpse, essentially. And then Job crying out, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Even Job crying out, I want to go on trial, put me on trial, and then you'll see how righteous I am. And so I shouldn't deserve this, God. Just speak to me, God. Speak to me, God. Explain what's going on, God. And then God finally shows up. And it would be simple, since we know it at the beginning of the book, that all these things that have happened are actually Satan's inducing. This was, you know, a spiritual battle or a spiritual game between God and Satan. But essentially, God was just allowing Satan to do all these miserable things. So God has an easy out talking to Job. He could just say, listen, this was the evil dude that did this. I let him do it, yes, but I didn't cause these boils on you, Job. 
But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. Not once. He doesn't even mention Satan. He just tells Job, who do you think I am? I created everything. And you're here to question me? Really? Really, Job? So whatever conclusion we make on whether God called for genocide, whether he allowed for abominable things to happen on that day as the Israelites raided those Midianite cities, whatever conclusion we make, God's not gonna dispute it with us. At least it doesn't seem like he will. He hasn't thus far. He's not answering to us. Now, here's the flip side of all that. Whether or not you believe God called for this genocide, we can't forget that he is absolutely omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful, all the omnis, right? He's so far beyond our understanding. It's not like as that Israelite grabbed that three-year-old from that crying, shouting, screaming mother, as that Israelite chopped off that three-year-old boy's head. It's not as if God didn't know the name of that three-year-old boy. It's not as though he didn't know the number of words that that boy could speak. It's not as though God wasn't present when the little boy took his first steps. It's not as though he doesn't know the mother's name, the father's name. He knows all those things, right? Here's Jesus in Luke chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is saying, God knows the number of hairs on our head. He also knows everything about those little sparrows that we count as near nothing. I'm sure he knows the number of ants on this earth. He knows everything. Everything. One of the other things that I noticed watching this whale documentary was how inflexible whales are. Or take take dolphins. They're super intelligent cousins, right? We often say, you know, dolphins and apes are, you know, the smartest animals on earth. But dolphins, they can't move much, right? They can swim through the water really quickly, but, you know, they don't have hands. All they can really do is just kind of bend a little bit and open their mouths. It's a very limited kinesthetic life, I think, uh, in comparison to all of our joints and all the things that our bodies can do and all the different directions we can move. Dolphins can't move that much. We are like that, I think, with our view of things, right? We can, we can only move so slightly, whereas God has this infinite, beyond understanding notion of everything. God is also, too, beyond good and evil, which makes our question, what if God was evil all the more murky in a way. Because, of course, even if he was evil, even if that genocide that day in Midian was bad, even if we declare it, every one of us looks at it, even if we were witnessed that day and saw the atrocities, saw that three-year-old boy being slew, being grabbed out of his mother's hands, even if we decide God is evil, it doesn't make him any less in charge. It doesn't take anything away from him. He's not going to relinquish the keys to the universe to us because we called him out. This week, we looked at at genocide, which, you know, as far as I consider it, isn't against God's own law, right? Like, God never said, and I shall never call you to commit genocide. Next week, we're going to look at a passage that seems hypocritical, at least on the outside. It seems like God's breaking his own rules. But as we leave today, I want to leave you with a personal question, a personal charge. First to the Christian, then to the atheist. Christian, if you were there that day, if you witnessed that three-year-old boy a hundred, a thousand times over be ripped from his mother and his head cut off, if you watched 
the Israelite men callously looking over all the women, checking to see if they were virgins or not, and then deciding, okay, these are not virgins, and killing them. If you saw that day Israelite men raping their new property, would your view of God change? If I put you in a transport or a time machine and you magically were there this moment, and you saw those things with your own eyes, you heard those unutterable sounds from the screams of crying mothers, would your view of God change? Atheist, no matter how this story goes, whether there's a God, whether there's an energy that's controlling everything, or whether the world just runs on clean chaos, you are never going to be able to put it on trial. We are all stuck in a game we can never truly fathom. So, my question to you, if the blue mist, the blue mist God that we talked about last episode, if God appears to you tomorrow and told you that everything you know or everything you hold dear, all your convictions are wrong, would you surrender to that God? If that God came and persecuted you for your beliefs, because he's all-powerful, would you surrender to him? Or would you still point your finger back at him and say, I disagree with you, even though you know everything, even though you're infinitely more powerful and more knowledgeable than me, I'm going up against you. I guess that question boils down to, what do you prize most? Your conscience or absolute power? I'm Dante Steck, signing out. Peace be the journey. Three hundred sixty-five honest questions is produced by myself, Dante Stack. Guys, you can find a whole lot more stuff on my website, DanteStack.com. Go there, find other goodies, and as always, if you want free stickers for this podcast and my other podcast, Solve the World. Solve the World, by the way, is a week-by-week fictionalized story that I've made. I'm trying to imitate like the best of TV shows these days, where they have a well-plotted, well-paced show that unravels a story over a season or two seasons or a three season arc i'm trying to do that in weekly podcast form with sound effects music and a fully written story so check that out if you like stickers and you want stickers for this podcast and that podcast all you got to do is write a review for me on itunes Uh, you can find instructions on how to do that on dantestack.com thanks guys see you next week